Our text this morning is Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 16 through 20. Matthew chapter 68, 28, verses 16 through 20. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us this morning, we are just two months shy of three years here in the book of Matthew. Uh, it's been quite a journey uh, over the last three years looking at this book, opening up each passage of Scripture, each chapter, and each verse. And so we come to the conclusion this morning. So if you found your way there to Matthew 28, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Again, Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You can be seated. I want you to imagine for a moment that a package arrives on your doorstep. And as you open the package, you, you open it up, and inside are thousands upon thousands of small individual parts. And you open the box, and you can tell these pieces seem like they all belong together. They all look like they were machined and fabricated at the same place. They're all the same color, but it's just a box full of parts. And there's a note inside, and it says, please have this assembled as soon as possible. And you look at it, and you say, well, this is an impossible task. And you're right, there'd be no way, if you had a box of a thousand pieces, there'd be no way that you could put all of those pieces together in the right way, exactly as its maker intended. It'd be something you could never do on your own. But if you dig down in the bottom of the box, and in the box you find the manual. Now, it might take a little while, if you're not familiar with the the product, or you're not familiar with putting it together. But if you have the manual, if you have the step-by-step process, what was an impossible task is now a possible task. And so what we have in front of us this morning is Jesus giving us the instruction manual for what would be an impossible task without it. To go into all the world and to preach the gospel and to reach people for the good news of who Christ is, if we didn't have this passage of Scripture this morning that relays to us what God has done in order to make this possible, what we would have in front of us would be an impossible task. But what we have now is something that's very possible because of what Jesus has done. In this passage of Scripture, what we find is the disciples now are heading to Galilee. Now, this is some days after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, There's an estimated period of probably almost two weeks before the disciples leave Jerusalem and head to Galilee, where most of them lived. And in that period of time, Jesus had appeared to a number of the disciples on about 10 or 12 occasions in different places. They had seen him and witnessed him in different times. And Matthew doesn't give us a whole lot of detail about where they're going, But just that they're going to Galilee and that they're going to a mountain which Jesus had designated. Now, oftentimes, uh, scholars have tried to figure out which mountain it is. And all of them will say, it's like, we don't know. We're just making an educated guess. But the disciples knew. So Jesus, either before his death or after his resurrection, had confirmed to them, this is the place where we're going to meet. And this is most likely the same account that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, where there were about 500 people gathered there. So there's all of these people gathered there in Galilee. And the reason they're there in Galilee is because Jesus has has separated them out to get outside of the city. 
Because what he has to tell them is important. He doesn't want any of the distractions of the city. He doesn't want any of the distractions of the chief priests and the Pharisees coming in. He wants to be able to focus on them, to talk to them, and to be able to give them this instruction that not only is what they needed to hear there in the first century, but what we need to hear now here in the 21st century. Notice it says the 11 disciples. The 11 disciples makes up everyone except for Judas. And they proceeded to Galilee to this mountain. So the first thing that I want you to notice in this passage is the obedience and the availability of the disciples. Because here's the important thing to realize. What Jesus is getting ready to do in this passage, this pivotal moment, that he's going to talk to his disciples and give them what we know now is what we call the Great Commission. Had they not obeyed Jesus? Had they not gone to Galilee? Had they not been available in this moment, they would not have heard what Jesus had to say. And brothers and sisters, there's an important thing for us to learn from this passage here. Is that we must be available to the call that God puts on us. I hear people say all the time, it's like, I, I want to be, be used by God. You look at and you read the, the history books of great missionaries and pastors you know, you look at the, the, the lives of people who have given their lives. Some are very well known. You think of uh, William Carey and Adrian Judson. You think of Charles Spurgeon or John Calvin or uh, Martin Luther. You think of any of these guys from, from church history. And people say, man, how, how does someone get used like that by God? And then there's smaller names that people have never heard of. Maybe even in your own life, you know of a, of a grandmother or a Sunday school teacher or somebody in your life who had a powerful impact for God. And history has forgotten their name, but you know their name because of the impact they had on your life. And you think, how, how does someone be used by God in such a great capacity? Because they made themselves available. They were obedient to what God said. So the disciples, they didn't know what they were going to, Right? I mean, some of them are still struggling to really wrap their minds around what has happened here. That Jesus has risen from the dead. They've seen him, but they're still struggling in many ways to really wrap their minds around all this. And so now they're leaving out. They're going back to Galilee. They have no idea what they're going. They just know Jesus said, go to the mountain where I've told you, and I'm going to meet you there. And brothers and sisters, sometimes this is the way God does it for us. God says, go. And we don't know what's going to meet us there when we get there. We don't know what he's going to be doing. He just says, go, and we've got to be willing to go. We can't question him. We can't say, well, God, I, could you give me just a, a few more details, right? Uh, tell me how long it's going to take. How long will I be there? Is it going to be easy or is it going to be hard? No, God just says, you need to go. And we make ourselves available and we go. So the 11 disciples go there and they go to the mountain which Jesus has designated. So they were obedient to him and they were available to him. The question I want to ask you this morning, brothers and sisters, is are you being obedient to God's call upon your life? No matter how long I preach, I'm never more amazed at God's providence and sovereignty than when it comes to just verse-by-verse -verse preaching through the Bible. Pastor Ben and Pastor Wes and I could sit down and share with you story after story after story of seeing God's perfect orchestration of events in correlation to where we are in a passage of Scripture. And here we find ourselves again this morning, because this morning, Pastor Ben and Rebecca and their family are doing exactly what we see here in this passage of Scripture. The Lord has called them to go, 
and they're going. Now, we know they have beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who are waiting on them there, which is an encouragement. Now, when the disciples go out, they don't know what they're going to have when they get there. And even in a sense, Pastor Ben and his family don't know everything that awaits them there, but the one thing they do know is that by being obedient to God, that God is handling every step along the way. So they were obedient and they were available. And my brothers and sisters, your question this morning is, are you being obedient? Are you where you need to be? Is God calling you to do something? And we're not talking about having to go somewhere. It might just be something you need to do with the place that you work, something that you need to do in your neighborhood, something you need to do in your family, something you need to do here locally in Waynesville or Haywood County. But the question is, is are you being available to God? Have you said to him, Lord, I'm willing to do whatever it is you would have me to do. Use me. So the disciples were obedient and available. Notice, though, there's an element of worship that's tied into all of this. Because verse 17 says that when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. Now, that, that seems to be an, an interesting uh, dynamic of ideas, right? They worshiped him, but some doubted. Now, the word that's used for worship here is a, is a different word and phraseology that's used in other places because now the disciples and even those who are gathered there with them, they realize who Jesus is. They believed even before his death and his resurrection because they had hope. And even though they struggled, they had hope. They believed his truth. They believed in his message. But now it has all been confirmed to them. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is the Messiah. They know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he's the son of God. So when they worship here in this moment, this is true worship. They're they're falling down and, and worshiping him and praising him and glorifying him, not just as a great teacher but as the incarnate Son of God. They're worshiping Him in His glory and in His splendor, and they recognize Him. Now, there's this question of why some were doubtful. And many believe that it's answered in the first part of verse 18 because it says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them. So many think that probably what the answer was is because even though they had seen Jesus and they had, he had appeared to them in many different times already, that as he's walking up to them, they see him and some are like, well, yeah, but maybe that's, maybe that's not really him. Maybe that's somebody else. Maybe we're seeing a, another figment of our imagination. Maybe this is not actually Jesus. So they were doubtful. And then as he got closer and they could recognize him and they could see him more intimately face to face, then they continued in their worship. They were worshiping Jesus in a brand new way because they were convinced of the reality of who he truly was. We see this happen in people's lives, right? There are people who grow up in church and they know who Jesus is, they, they, and they believe that God exists, but they've never actually crossed the line going from just believing in their head to believing in their heart. And they come to church and they sing the songs alongside of their parents or, or, their, or their spouses. Because they believe that God exists, but they've never crossed the line. But when that moment happens, when they're truly convinced of who Jesus really is, when they see the glory of God and His holiness and His splendor, and they see their sinfulness, and they come in repentance to faith in Christ, then that worship takes on a whole new level. We're not worshiping just as someone who has a head knowledge of Christ, but worshiping someone who has a heart knowledge of Christ who trusts in Him, who knows Him. And here, the disciples, those who are gathered around, are worshiping Him because they know Him to be the Messiah. So there was an obedience, there was a worship. And look at verse 18, because here in verse 18, Jesus speaks 
of His authority. And this is these last three verses is where I want to spend the bulk of our time this morning because there's so much in these verses. There's so much wrapped up in here that, that even for me, I, I've preached these three verses probably numerous times over my time in ministry. But I have to be honest this morning that as I went back to this text this week and I began to study it afresh, I began to see in here things that I'd never really taken the time to consider. And I think a lot of it was because as we've studied through the book of Matthew, and Matthew has been laying down all these foundational elements for what he's doing here. There, there's, no, there's no accident that this passage is here at the very end of the book. It's no accident that this passage here is not just at the end of the book, but the very last verses of the book. Because Matthew is saying, everything that I've been doing from the very beginning and painting a picture of Jesus as the Son of God and painting a picture of Jesus as the Messiah, this is what it's all about. This is where it all wraps up. This is where it all comes together. And it's all here in these last three verses. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. All authority. Brothers and sisters, I think if we can wrap our minds around what Jesus is telling us here in this passage, that as we look out onto the world, it changes our total perspective of everything that we see. Because let's be honest, you watch the news, you read the newspaper, you get on Facebook or whatever other social media platform is out there. You just go to the grocery store or to Walmart and you look around and you see what's happening in the world around us. It can be very easy to be discouraged. It can be very easy to sometimes even feel overwhelmed because it's ever increasingly obviously that Christianity in America is becoming a minority instead of the majority. But I want us to be encouraged this morning. I don't want us to walk out of here this morning feeling dismal about the the state of what is to come. I want us to walk out of here this morning excited about the state of what is to come. And that excitement is found in what Jesus begins to unwrap for us here in this verse, because he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, this passage here, when Jesus talks about this authority, it's really referencing back to Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, there's a prophecy in verses 13 and 14. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven came one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on the earth. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 20 says, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and that every, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 
Listen to what Paul said there. He said about all of these things, about Jesus ruling and reigning and everything being under his feet, he says not only in the age to come, but he says in this age. He says not only in this age, but the age to come. So we're not talking about Jesus ruling and reigning in a yet-to-come kingdom. We're talking about Jesus ruling and reigning in the immediate presence now. Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those which are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, let me be clear this morning. We are waiting the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is not here physically present in this world right now. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we long for and look for the day when he will physically return to this earth and take us all to be with him. But do not be mistaken. Jesus is not in heaven waiting to rule and reign over the earth. He is already ruling and reigning over the earth. God has given him full power, full authority, full victory over everything that is going on here on the earth. He says, I've been given all authority in heaven and on the earth. To me, I don't know how it could be any clearer than what Jesus says here. He says, not only do I have authority in heaven, but I have authority on the earth. And he doesn't postpone that until some point in the future. He says, everything that God has given to me, he says, I have that now. Really what Jesus here is doing, he is proclaiming victory. He says, I am the king. I have been set in a position of authority. And now everyone must come and worship me. It was much like when in the days of old, when you had kings in different places and a king would go in and he would conquer a new land. You'd have all these small villages and hamlets that were out there and and people were just really ignorant of what was happening in the greater part of the kingdom because they were so far reached out. And when a king would go in and conquer a new land, they would send people out to go out into the villages and say, hey, guess what, guys? This used to be your king. Now this guy's your king. You don't have an option here. He's now ruling and reigning. He is your king. You must become subservient to him or you face the consequences. Jesus is ruling and reigning. William Carey, the great missionary, said, We are neither working in uncertainty nor afraid of the results. But he, speaking of Jesus, must reign until Satan has not an inch of territory. Jesus here is giving the disciples this acknowledgement. He says, all power and authority has been given unto me in heaven and all the earth. I am seated on the throne. I am ruling and I am reigning. But but, but the most critical part about what this means is when Jesus says this, is he, he says this statement and then he goes into verses 19 and 20 and he's saying on the basis of understanding this, On the basis of knowing that I am in a position of power and authority over all the heavens and over all the earth, he says, now, here's what I want you to do. He says, I am bestowing my authority to you. He says, my authority rules and reigns over all the earth so that now I am sending you out as my ambassadors to go and to do my task. So we've seen the obedience of the disciples. We've seen their worship. We see the power and the authority of Jesus. But I want you to notice here the task. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. There's a few things we see there. He says, go, 
He says, make disciples, baptize them, and look at verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, growing up, again, I've read this passage hundreds, maybe thousands of times. And in our English translations, there's a little bit lost in how verse 19 starts, because it says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Almost as if it's a a command saying, okay, when you're ready, then you go. But in the original language, what it actually means is, as you are going, then do these things. So the expectation here is that as disciples of Jesus Christ, as Christians, there is not an option not to go. Jesus is saying, as you are going, then you do these things. He's not saying when you decide to go, or if you decide to go, or if you want to be obedient, or if you decide you, you, you feel like you can do it this week. No, Jesus is saying, I've given you power, I've given you authority, so as you're going, I'm expecting you, this is an ex- expectation, as you are going, then you go and you make disciples of all the nations. Jesus says to make disciples. Now, our 21st century kind of definition of this term, I think, is somewhat subjective depending on who you talk to. You hear lots of people talk about discipleship and what that looks like and what it means to make disciples and all this. And really, it's a symbol of what Jesus is talking about here is proclaiming truth. He says, you go out and you proclaim truth to the nations. You go out and teach them the truth of my word. And really, it correlates back to what I just said a moment ago with the illustration of a new king coming in. He says, you go out and you proclaim the truth of my word. You're telling others that there's a new king on the throne. And this is not just mere education. We're not just giving people a head knowledge, but it's full discipleship, teaching them everything about the truth and what it means to know Christ so that they will become converted. They will put their faith and trust in him. So it's us going out to the nations and telling them that God in His glory and His sovereignty has made a way for lost sinners to be reconciled to Him. And you're a sinner. You're one who has rejected God. You were born into sin, and because of your sin, you've been separated from God. And you have no hope in yourself. And the only hope that you have is to put your faith and trust in Christ, who because of His obedience to God can forgive your sins and grant you everlasting life. We make disciples by proclaiming the truth of God's Word to them. And we have to be willing to do it. And sometimes the proclamation of truth is easy. Sometimes you're going to be out and you're going to run into somebody at the grocery store or run into somebody on the streets and you're going to begin to share the gospel with them and they're going to say, wow, I... This is great news. You know, I, I, I've always wanted to know and understand what the Bible taught. And, and, and so and they're, they're just desirous to know that because the Holy Spirit has been working upon their heart. And then other times it's going to be very difficult. You're going to try to share the gospel with someone and they're just going to reject you outright. Brothers and sisters, guess what? It doesn't change who Christ is. Whether that person puts their faith and trust in Christ or rejects Christ, Jesus is still ruling and reigning on the throne. It's not up to us to convert them. 
It's not up to us to convince them. Our job is to be obedient, to tell them the truth of who Jesus is. And then they're going to make the decision of whether they're going to fall upon their face as they should and worship a holy God, or whether they're going to harden their fist and, their, and their shake their fist at God. Jesus says to disciple all the nations. This is a worldwide mission. This is the, the birth of the New Testament church because Everything had been centered there in Jerusalem. Everything had been mostly centered around the Jewish nation. And so now Jesus is saying the time has come for the good news of who Jesus is to go into all the world, to go into all the nations, to spread out as far as the eye can see. It's a worldwide mission. Jew first and then to the Gentile. And this is the mission of the church. All the time you see churches talking about their mission statements and, and whatever it is that they want to come up with, and they come out with these long things about you know, particular areas, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But brothers and sisters, there's no greater mission statement that the church has than to go and to make disciples of all the nations. This is what we're called to do. There's no question about it. If you're a church and you're not about the business of making disciples, then you're not a church. And may I be so bold as to say this morning that if you call yourself a Christian and you're not about the business of making disciples, then you're not a Christian. Now this doesn't mean, I want to be clear this morning, this doesn't mean that you have to have a certain number of people that you witness to each day. And this doesn't mean that if we are somewhat maybe shy in, in how we share our faith and somewhat hesitant but we want to, then that's understandable, right? Because sometimes we just don't have the training that we need. Sometimes we just have, need to be somebody to come alongside of us and, and encourage us in sharing our faith. What I'm talking about this morning is those people who claim to be Christians, but the thought never crosses their mind of, you know, I, I should be sharing my faith with other people. The thought never crosses their mind about being evangelistic. The thought never crosses their mind. You know what? Jesus said that we should share our faith. Jesus said that we should be obedient to tell others. If you're someone here this morning and the thought has never crossed your mind that you should be a disciple maker, the thought has never crossed your mind about being obedient to the Great Commission, I would encourage you this morning to do some serious soul searching. Because what it means to be a believer in Christ is that we have the desire. Maybe we don't have the ability yet. Maybe we don't have the, the, the understanding yet, but we have the desire. It's in our hearts. We want to do it. We desire to do it. Jesus says to make the disciples of all the nations, and he says, baptizing them. So this is the first step of obedience for a new believer. They're baptized. He says, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, when it's, yeah, there's a an interesting debate throughout uh, history of whether uh, Jesus is signifying using the word in or into here. And we don't have time to talk about that this morning. But the idea of baptizing someone in the name of someone else is, is signifying this submission to obedience. When we see someone baptized, we understand that it's a picture of them being buried to their old self and raised to walk in newness of life. It's a picture of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. But it's also a picture of us submitting unto the obedience of Jesus. That we're testifying to the whole world. My life is no longer my own. I'm, I'm being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm submitting myself to Him. And so Jesus says this is what they should do. They should be baptized to show to the world their first step of obedience. And then notice what Jesus says there in verse 20. 
teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. This is so much about what the Christian life should look like. It was, I guess, probably almost now about probably 40 years ago when John MacArthur wrote a book entitled, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, directed towards the, uh, the Lordship of Christ. And it was the gospel according to Jesus. And after he wrote that book, he encountered much pushback uh, from people saying, well, no, no, wait a minute. You know, you can have Jesus as Savior, but you don't necessarily have to have Him as Lord, right? You can, you can be saved, but you don't have to serve Him. You can be saved, but you don't have to be obedient to Him. And what MacArthur did is brought light to something that had been a debate for many, many years. And he pointed to it and says, well, Jesus says here that if we're a believer in Jesus Christ, if we're a disciple of Christ, He says, you teach them to observe all things that I've commanded you. There's an obedience aspect of Christianity. We're not saved by our works. Our works do not grant us higher levels in, of, of holiness with God or, or before Him. But our obedience testifies to the fact that we are truly saved. Our obedience bears witness of the fact that we have truly been converted. Our good works are the evidence to the world that we have truly put our faith and trust in Christ. And over and over, Jesus pointed to this. Luke chapter 6, He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Jesus is telling those people, He says, You can call me Lord all day long. He said, But if you're not going to be obedient to me, then you're wasting your breath. Don't call me Father. Don't call me Lord. Don't call me Savior if you're not going to do what I've commanded you to do. Jesus said again in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And what we've ended up with in our, especially in Americanized Christianity, if we've ended up with a gospel that tells people that you can you can pray a prayer, you you can say that you're saved, and you can just continue living life how you want to. As long as you've done that one thing, you don't have to be obedient to Christ. You don't have to follow His commands. You don't have to do what He says. You can do whatever you want to do, and you'll still be okay in the end. I can remember so very clearly when I was serving in youth ministry. We had gone to a, uh, a ministry event with some young people, kind of a missions project kind of thing where we were working on houses. And in the midst of working on houses, we had the opportunity to talk with neighbors in the neighborhood and share the gospel with them. And... and uh, we came back and I was hearing the reports from some of the people and I remember very clearly a guy getting up and he said that they had witnessed to it, that the project they were working on, he had witnessed to a guy who was next door, which was obviously a house where there was drug deals going on. There were cars in and out all day and things like that happening. And he said, I witnessed to this guy and he said, you know, I, you know, I led him in a prayer and, you know, and, and now he's a Christian. He said, now, He might have gone right back to selling drugs that afternoon, but I know that when I die, I'm going to see him in heaven. And brothers and sisters, that's the problem with that view of salvation. But that's the problem with that view, is that if we don't have Jesus as Savior, obviously we can't have our faith and trust in Him, but if we also don't have Him as Lord, then we do not have Him as our Savior. When Jesus says to teach them all that I commanded you, he's talking about an instruction with a focus on obedience. He's talking about teaching them an instruction to, to, to learn and to know everything that the Bible has taught them. Now, notice here that that comes after their baptism. 
Somebody does not have to know a full knowledge of everything in the Scriptures and everything about the Bible in order to be saved. They just have to know that they're a sinner, that God is holy, that they're without hope, and that they can put their faith and trust in Christ. We trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You look at the thief on the cross. All he recognized was his sinfulness and the holiness of Jesus and that Jesus was truly the Messiah. He didn't have a Bible background. He had not read any passages of Scripture. He just recognized his own sin, and he recognized the holiness of Jesus and who Jesus truly was. He put his faith in Christ, and he was in heaven that afternoon. But Jesus says for those who do become Christians and those who have more time and those who are baptized, he says then, whose responsibility is it? It's our responsibility to teach them and to train them. And brothers and sisters, we need to be keenly aware of this. Because we can be so guilty of looking at somebody who maybe is a new Christian or looking at somebody, maybe who's been a Christian for a while, but has never been discipled and be like, well, you know, they need to know better. How will they know better unless we tell them? How will they know better unless we come alongside them? How will they know better unless we do what Jesus says here and help to make them more obedient disciples? So it's not just going out and seeing people converted. It's not just baptizing them. So many churches have been guilty of of just baptizing people and just letting them sit out in the pew and saying, well, good luck. Hope you have a great time. It's our responsibility to train them and to come alongside them. Jesus says, you teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. So there's command to go to all the world, to make disciples, to bring them to faith, to tell them the truth that they might put their trust in Christ, baptize them, and then teach them to be obedient to Christ. Now, as we close this morning, I want you to look at the last thing. We've seen the obedience, the worship, the power, and the command. Last thing I want you to notice here this morning is the promise. It's at the end of verse 20. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To me, this is one of the most encouraging things that we see here in this passage. Because as we go back to what I said at the beginning, Jesus has not given us a box of parts and an impossible task without an instruction manual. He's given us everything that we need because He's not only told us what we have to do, but He says, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. I'm going to be right alongside of you. And understanding that means that we don't have to fear anything. We have no reason to fear. We will never have a reason to fear because Jesus says, I'm going to be with you even to the end of the age. Jesus had already given us the promise When he spoke to Peter in Matthew chapter 16, he says, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And we talked about when we read that passage, that passage is not about the kingdom of hell onslaughting against the church and the church holding back. This is about the church overpowering the kingdom of hell, pushing against it, and the gates of hell will not have the power to stand against the power of the church and of the gospel. Jesus said that He is with us. This is a guarantee of His mission. You remember one of the promises He said that God said, I'm going to send you what? Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus was not only with His disciples in the physical sense, but now He is with us in the spiritual sense every single day of our lives. As we go out on mission for Him, Jesus is with us. 
And the glorious thing about understanding that is to go back to what Jesus has already said, is that he's not just with us, but he's with us as the full reigning and sovereign king. So there's nothing in this world that can hold us back from the task that God has put before us. And Jesus said he's going to be with us to the end of the age. There was a young man by the name of David Brainerd. David Brainerd was actually the son-in-law of Jonathan Edwards. And God put a call on his life to go to the Native Americans. Unfortunately, David didn't get to serve as long as he had hoped. He died in his early 30s from tuberculosis. But he was a man who had committed his life and given up almost everything to do what he desired to do. So much so that his life inspired his father-in-law, Jonathan Edwards, to write a biography of him. And that biography had gone out to the United States and over to the UK, and that biography was transformative in the lives of so many people. And one of those men who it was so transformative is, was the life of William Carey. William Carey was a cobbler in England, and he read David Brainerd's biography. And he was challenged to be obedient to the call of the gospel. And so he gave the rest of his life to the work of missions. And the reason that William Carey did that is because he believed that the gospel changes things. And brothers and sisters, I think to me this is where the hope lies in this. The hope lies in the fact that we believe as Christians that the gospel is transformative. That when someone comes to faith in Christ, it's very clear, every man who's in a Christ is a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What does that mean? It means it transforms everything about that individual's life. It transforms their character. It transforms their language. It transforms their their actions and culture. It transforms the way they do business. Everything about that person is transformed. Remember what we saw throughout the New Testament when Paul would preach the gospel and people would get saved? They would all get together and burn their idols, burn their witchcraft books. Why? Because we're done with those things. And the entire cities would be turned upside down because the gospel had gone forth into those places. Because that's what the gospel does. It doesn't just transform individuals. It transforms culture. It transforms the world as it goes forth. Because if people are being saved, and those people are leading more people to Christ, and those people are leading more people to Christ, then eventually it has an impact on the greater culture. And we've seen that throughout church history. We've seen that throughout the the world history. But sisters, we must understand that what we are doing here is not an immediate task. And what I mean by that is, as we go out and share the gospel, we can sometimes be far too short-sighted in what we're doing. We're sharing the gospel not so that we can say a week from now, well, look at how great Barberville is doing in Waynesville. We're sharing the gospel so that 10 years, 100 years, if the Lord tarries 500 years from now, that the fruit of what we're doing now will continue to transform this region for the glory of God. And ebbs of church history flow. You can look all throughout. You see the rise of the church in the New Testament. And it, and it grows to this pinnacle, and then they're pushed back through persecution. And then through all the eras of, of, of human history, you see this rise and ebb and flow. That where the church grows and rises, and then persecution pushes it back a little bit. But then the church grows and rises again. And every time, the sink down is not as great. I mean, the, sink, uh, the, the climb up is, is greater than the sink down before. And the church continues to grow and to strengthen. 
And it's easy for us to look around today and look at the United States and think, well, woe is me, Christianity is shrinking in America. And it is. I'm not standing here today to deny the fact that it's shrinking. But guess what? Christianity is not just about the United States. Look around the world. In China, where the church is perhaps one of the most severely persecuted places in the world right now, the church is growing. Those people are standing boldly for the gospel. In places like North Korea, where it's profoundly illegal to be a Christian, the church is growing. Places like Africa, the church is growing. So we have to sometimes take a step back and look at the greater things that God is doing and understand that what Jesus is talking about here, he says, this is a long-term project. He says, but I'm going to be with you to the end. He says, I'm going to be with you to the very end. And the gospel is going to continue to transform this world. The gospel is going to continue to grow. And brothers and sisters, I don't look out at the future with a dismal, with a dismal prospect. I look out at the future with great hope. Because I believe the gospel will continue to transform the world. And will continue to bring people to faith in Christ. And what we're doing right now here at Barberville, I'll be honest this morning. I don't know that we'll see the greater impact of what we're doing in this moment in my lifetime. It might be in my children's lifetime. Or even my grandchildren's lifetime. But that doesn't discourage me from the task. Because I want to see those things come to pass. I want to see God do another great awakening in America. But you know, the great awakening didn't start the month before it happened. It started because generations before had been pleading with God to do something. They had been faithful in sharing the gospel. They had been faithful in making disciples. And then God said, okay, I'm going to move. Jesus says, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. It's encouraging to me that as we look again at human history, that empires rise and empires fall. But if you look at that, who's always still standing at the end? Rome, the greatest empire the world had ever known, collapsed and fell around itself. But you know what didn't fall and collapse? The church. The church was still there. The church and the gospel was still there to go in and to pick up in, 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 in idea, pick up the rubble and to carry forth with the mission of the gospel. Every place in human history, the church is the one that always stands through to the end and always will, Jesus says, until the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you this morning, just turn off the news, turn off the TV. Let us sink ourselves deep into the Word of God and say, you know what? We have a task to do. Let's preach the gospel. Let's see people converted. Let's baptize them. Let's make them disciples. And then let's wait for God to do His continued work in the world. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, thank You for this Word. Thank You for this instruction. Lord, I pray, God, that we would be a church committed to Your truth. That we would be a church, Father, committed to sharing the gospel wherever we go. And Father, I pray that perhaps there's one in here this morning who, Lord, they have the desire, but Lord, perhaps they feel hesitant about what it is that they can do. They feel hesitant about being able to, to know what they need to say. I pray, Father, that you would just, uh, that they would reach out to, to us as pastors and that we could help them along that journey. But Father, I also pray if there's someone here this morning who Lord, they have professed a trust in you, but Lord, they have no desire 
to see people come to faith in you. They have no desire to be evangelistic, no desire to, to be obedient to what your word tells us to do here. Father, I pray that you would move upon their heart. That, Lord, if they're not genuinely converted, that, Lord, you would show them that evidence this morning. That they might put their faith and trust in you. Lord, help us. Lord, we know that this task can be difficult, but, Lord, what a glorious hope we have in knowing that you are ruling and reigning. That you have all power, all authority, Father, and you have given that unto us to go into all the world. And not only have you given us your authority, but you were with us every step of the way. Lord, we pray that we may be obedient to you, Lord, even if we don't see the immediate results. Lord, I think of stories of countless missionaries who have gone to foreign lands and served for years upon years upon years before they saw their first convert. But Lord, they kept doing what they knew to do. And Lord, may it be said of us that we are faithful to be obedient to the task of the Great Commission by going and sharing, and discipling. And we ask all of this this morning in Jesus' mighty